Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, if I seem extra cranky and in need of a nap during this podcast, um, well, it's because I'm extra cranky and in need of a nap. <laughs> Uh, you and I quasi-joke frequently about our inability to stay up late on Saturday nights and watch televised fight cards. Um, but there was something heartening, I thought, about the fact that the rest of the country joined us <laughs> in our inability or fury of being yes. forced to stay up late uh, on Saturday night, Sunday morning. Um, look, even by boxing standards, uh, this was fairly ridiculous. Look, if you want to attract people to a sport, you don't start your big event at 1 a.m., past 1 a.m., 1.18, yeah. I think it was, on yeah. the East Coast. Uh, even if the clock's going back an hour means that it ends at about the same time, that doesn't count. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, the, the the whole fallback thing is BS. Uh, my, my first child was born in 2006, and I have not slept in since. Uh, <laughs> and so I woke up at 5.30 Sunday instead of 6.30, and I will be utterly useless by 8 p.m. tonight <laughs> while I spend the next few days recovering from this supposed gift of an extra hour. Uh, but as for DeZone's decision to start the fight at, as you said, 1.18 a.m. on the East Coast to avoid competing with the UFC main event, I have a lot to say about this. Uh, this this isn't going to be the standard 30 seconds of jovial banter and then straight into Saddle the show. Up. Yes, indeed. The grumpy old men are going to rant and say, oh, flibbly flew a few times. Um, when DeZone indicated on Friday afternoon that Canelo and Kovalev would have their ring walks after the end of the UFC main event, we were told it was a win-win for fans of both boxing and MMA. I suppose. Good for them. It was a lose-lose for everybody else, particularly those who subscribe to DAZN for the boxing and don't care about MMA. You want to avoid overlap with the UFC main event? Okay. Make the Blair Cobbs fight a swing-slash-walkout bout and get Canelo Kovalev in the ring at 11 Eastern so it's over before the UFC fight. This isn't complicated. Um... We hear all the time about how baseball has been making a huge mistake starting World Series games after 8 o'clock Eastern times. So they end between 11 and 12 and no preteen East Coast kid can watch. And that's a very valid complaint. Uh, my 10-year-old son fell in love with baseball this year. He should be your target audience, but he didn't see past the fifth inning of a single World Series game. So that's baseball. Along comes boxing with the ultimate hold my beer. Uh, <laughs> hey, baseball, you're going to end your games around midnight? Watch this. At midnight, we're going to be 30% of the way into our 90-minute stall routine. Uh, I get the instinct to avoid going head-to-head -head with UFC. Uh, I think it's fine and appropriate for DAZN to have a discussion about how to handle this. The decision they reached, however, was very, very wrong. You, you cater to the audience of the sport you're broadcasting, not the audience of some other sport. And by the way, you picked this date, November 2nd, insisting it was the perfect date. Canelo had to fight on this date. Kovalev had to have a nine-week turnaround, take the fight or leave it. They couldn't possibly do it a week or two later. And then when all is said and done, you abdicate November 2nd and start right. your fight on November 3rd. <laughs> so... What a slap in the face to both Kovalev, who reluctantly yes. took the fight on this date, and to your biggest star, Canelo, who had to wait around for an hour and a half like a chump. Uh, the only silver lining of all this 
was that boxing Twitter was on fire on Saturday night and early Sunday morning. Uh, some great tweets, both angry and funny. I have a, a few of my favorites here. Uh, uh, you may have seen some of these, maybe not all of them, but uh, Tim Dahlberg of the AP wrote, Apparently, DAZN believes UFC is bigger than one of the biggest fights the service will stream this year. Embarrassing to boxing and an insult to fans who paid good money at MGM Grand. Uh, Our boss, Steven Espinoza, tweeted, Stalling a Canelo fight so we can all sit in the arena and watch MMA on screens is insane. An insult to the sport of boxing in general and to Canelo and Kovalev in particular. Fans came to MGM to watch boxing. If they wanted to watch MMA, they would have stayed home and done so. Uh, British boxing fan and friend of the show, David Lee, wrote, Absolute shit show, this. Uh, I, I envy the British and the way that <laughs> they put angry words together. The phrase, absolute shit show, this, is very potent. Um, he continued, Boxing main events have clashed regularly over the years, and no one bats an eyelid, yet the biggest boxing match of the year is on hold due to a UFC fight. Pathetic. And this is a great point. How many times did HBO and Showtime counter-program each other? Uh, but we're saying, that's okay, but counter-programming from another sport with a largely separate fan base is a problem. Uh, and a few quick funny ones. Uh, someone named Jerry replied to one of my tweets midway through the delay. The reply was, Marlon Esparza's cut is already healed. <laughs> that was a reference to an undercard fight and her nasty wound that I believe I saw her brain poking through. Um, our buddy Al Bernstein had a great line. The problem now is that the fight will likely conflict with Meet the Press. <laughs> well played by Al. Um, and and finally, we aren't always the most uh, Teddy Atlas friendly podcast here, but I thought he had a good tweet. I might need PEDs just to stay up long enough to see this fight. Uh, and Teddy, if you find any PEDs that work toward that end, let me know. I, yeah, I could use them in general trying to be a fan of this sport. Yeah, look, I mean, the problem is boxing, You know, it starts from the base that its main events, its big shows already start too late. Like even when they start on time, they start too late. <laughs> right. Um, and so then you add this in there as well. I mean, I thought for me that the key element was it was hugely, and you touched on it, it was hugely disrespectful to Canelo and to uh, Alvarez and to Kovalev. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder how much of this would even have been necessary had the show been even well promoted. It was a Canelo Alvarez show. And yet, um, the MGM Grand was reportedly dead all week. There was virtually nobody, if you watch the weigh-in, at the weigh-in for a Canelo Alvarez weigh-in, for heaven's yeah. sake. Um, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, uh, Canelo, the fighters reportedly not doing a great deal themselves to really push the fight. And, and really, Canelo has no incentive to. He's already getting $35 million a fight, mm. and he no longer has to worry about pay-per-view backside. So... You know, so for all of that, it was, it was just already for what it was, not a well-promoted fight. Uh, I, I saw that afterwards, uh, DAZN was spinning this by saying, hey, it worked because we really wanted to get uh, grow our subscriber base. And we got lots of brand new subscriptions from uh, UFC fans who signed up right after the UFC uh, main event. And hey, I'm color me dubious. Yes, and, I want to I see the receipts on that one. Yeah. Right. And B, how many of them are going to stay uh, subscribers and really you want to just prioritize new possibly temporary subscribers over those who have already subscribed and perhaps been sticking around for a while mm-hmm. um you've been around a year and you're already burning off your fans like this and 
what about the people who had to pay a fortune to be in the arena yes. who ended up having, watching the UFC fight? So, uh, yeah, so apparently Dana White saying that the MGM actually called him up and said, we have some really upset people in the arena who want to know what's going on. Can we, can we stream your, your main event in the, uh, in the arena? And, of course, he probably said yes. So right. I don't know. The whole thing was, was a terrible mess. And, yes, for me, as much as anything, it was just hugely disrespectful to the fighters. There would often be... Um, big downtimes on HBO pay-per-views when we had the Canelo Golovkin rematch. There's that huge amount of vamping required, a huge amount of downtime. Yeah. Um, but that was because the the undercard bouts had ended early, and the main eventers were promised that they wouldn't walk before 8:15 Pacific, and so they were honoring what they had been promised. Right. It wasn't a case of saying, ah, you know what, just there's soccer on, <laughs> so just just wait a little bit, and we'll we'll just glove up and. You'll be able to get in the ring in a couple of hours. I honestly, I just thought, just, just, just. I mean, when you when you're actually the prep, when the prep, the build up to the fight is the two fighters napping. Yes. I, 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 oh yeah. That, I mean, that was that image. If it wasn't, if it didn't feel embarrassing prior to that, that was the yep. moment where like anyone watching had to say, "Oh my God, what." what is yeah. going on here you just feel bad for the fighters and it just looks so bad for the sport and uh as you were as you were kind of going through that and talking about how uh you know they called dana white to, to get the okay to, to screen the mma fights i guess uh it was a good night for dana white and ufc <laughs> and mma for, yeah that, the night. reputation for 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 that side of things goes way up but uh yeah. not so much for boxing indeed and this is for, you know wherever if ever any evidence was needed you want to get Eric and Kieran passionate. It's about <laughs> it's about their bedtime being eaten into. We don't we don't get our twelve hours tonight. <laughs> Last night I would have I would have settled for four and a half. Or so I would be I'd okay. be happier now if I'd gotten that much. But yeah, right. we, we we need our beauty rest, the two of us. Really. We have a basic manifesto for boxing promoters and broadcasters, and it's not very hard. There's two items. One, don't do business with murderous regimes. Uh And two, end your cards on the same day they start. It's two really simple things. It's really easy to adhere to. That's our basic manifesto. Yeah, and and I'll even I'll even cut slack that you know fights ending after midnight on the East Coast. As much as I'd love to eliminate okay. that, ends I, I, before dawn. Right, <laughs> right. Or I was going to say at least main event should always start on the same right. day that it's scheduled to. Even if you know, uh, often we see these the the pay per view main right. event or whatever goes in the ring around eleven thirty, ends a little okay, right. but. Starting after 1 a.m., I, I still I can't believe that they uh, had the audacity to do that to to us, the two of us, more <laughs> than anyone most, else. Most yes. of, much more yes. than anybody else. Yes. So anyway, eventually, of course, the fight did get underway. Uh, and if the result was along the lines of what many had predicted, I'm not entirely sure the respective performances of Canelo Alvarez and Sergey Kovalev were entirely in line with what folks were anticipating. Um, Canelo, despite being ostensibly the smaller man and moving up, appeared from the very beginning to be, well, he's just focusing on landing big power shots as if from the very beginning, he was hoping or expecting to just take Kovalev out of there. Uh, it worked in the end, of course, um, but just before he scored the knockout in the 11th round, the DAZN announced crew was starting to turn on his performance. Um, there'd been a bit of booing from the audience, and um, some watching ringside or on DAZN uh, had Kovalev comfortably ahead, although the judges didn't. Um, so Canelo gets the KO, of course, so his strategy looks pretty smart right now, um, but 
What did you think of his performance and his approach? And how did you actually see the fight at the time of the stoppage? So if we're using results-based thinking, it was undoubtedly a good approach. Um, right. In actuality, I'd say it was an okay approach um, yeah. in admittedly a dangerous fight where patience made sense. Uh, and, and I suspect his approach was influenced slightly by his belief that he just won't ever lose a decision in a right. remotely close fight. And he can afford to fight in a certain uh, low-activity style. Uh, that others can't necessarily get away with. Um, and he's, you know, he wasn't going to lose a decision in a close fight here, uh, as two judges had him up 96 94, and the third had it 95 95. That was Don Trella. Ironically, the judge people seemed most concerned about going in uh, gave us the least Canelo friendly scorecard. I had Kovalev ahead 97 93. Mm. Although I wasn't happy about it. Like, I didn't feel mm. great about that score. It didn't feel like Kovalev was out fighting Canelo. Right. He was just kind of piling up points by being so much busier. Um, but this this was a fight with not just a bunch of close rounds, but a bunch of close rounds where a lot comes down to philosophy. Like, how many jabs equals a power punch? Uh, right. Are a whole slew of ineffective jabs better than standing there covering up? Um, so... I had it 7-3 Kovalev, but could very easily see that 5-5 card. The 6-4 cards, and particularly giving the first round to Canelo, uh, as yeah. Moretti did, uh, that seemed a bit of a reach. But uh, fortunately, that was made immaterial because Canelo's plan, uh, stalk, pressure, counter, throw big punches, let Kovalev tire, go to the body, and eventually get him, it worked perfectly. Uh, and suddenly, uh, I, I, I knew Kovalev was working hard. Uh, but I hadn't seen any suggestion that Canelo was hurting him or, or could hurt him or that he was close to being taken out or really tiring until suddenly, boom, he got wobbled and two punches later, it was over. I have to say, I thought both guys boxed really smart, but ultimately I don't think either one had an exceptional performance. Canelo had a great finish. And it goes down as a great win, but it was not his greatest performance start to finish. Uh, one thing Canelo did do exceptionally was blocking Kovalev from clinching. That, that yes. move he used to sort of sh block him and shove him off every time he leaned in was really clever and effective. And then Kovalev started doing this futile thing where he'd jump in shoulder first but not even try to clinch. Um but anyway, uh, I'm getting into some of the granular stuff there. That, that's my take. Close fight through 10. Looked like it was going to be a close, controversial decision one way or the other. And then, boom, KO, which was lovely for my sports betting bankroll. Uh, <laughs> how, did, how did you see it? I had it 95-95. Okay. Um, and, and sort of the same with you. It was an odd one in that all the time, really, I kept expecting Canelo to take it by the scruff of the neck and and take it away. Because, yes, exactly. Like, like Sergei was landing those punches with those jabs but they were you know pity pat jabs relatively speaking canelo looked like he was the one who was about to explode and make the fight he was the one who who was was stalking most of the time he was the one who appeared to be trying to dictate the fight and there was a long period where i was almost giving them alternate rounds a lot hmm. like um i think early on for like about the first five or six rounds, I was, you know, Kovalev had the e the odd numbered rounds on my card, and Canelo the even numbered ones. And and each time that Canelo got around, I thought, oh well, here we go, he's getting untracked now. This is what he wants. And then Kovalev would just keep him at bay with those, 
with those, you know, pity pat jabs. And it was weird. It felt as if, to sort of follow on from your point, that yes, Kovalev was getting winning rounds, but all the time Canelo was winning the fight, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It was it was just one of one of those kind of strange things. I, I even thought there were times where I thought, God, is Canelo underestimating Kovalev? Like he went in there thinking, I'm just gonna blow this guy away. All I have to do is hit him to the body a few times and then land cleanly and he's and he's going to go away. And I thought, wow, that's a bit bit arrogant because even though most of us thought that he would stop him late you know Kovalev's still a really good fighter Mm -hmm. and then as it turned out in the end it followed the script that most of us thought was going to happen and that obviously Canelo thought was going to happen and and I don't think that happened by accident I think that those body punches were bit by bit making Kovalev drop that right elbow just a little bit so that you know, when he did finally, you know, loosen up a little bit Kovalev and leave that opportunity for the hook, which is what Canelo was looking for all the time. Bang, he hit him with it. It is. I don't know that it was quite as accidental and out of the blue as it initially looked in the mm-hmm. same way that his knockout of Amir Khan wasn't quite as sudden right. and out of the blue as it looked like he had been very slightly setting it up, I think. But he almost, you know, we, we it almost just didn't pull off, come off. And um, yeah, we almost went to a stage where once again Canelo was going to win a highly controversial decision in Las Vegas. Right. Although uh, Canelo didn't cut it quite as close as uh, the fight that I started thinking of uh, in there when you were uh, talking uh, about how Kovalev was perhaps winning rounds and and piling up points, uh, you know, not necessarily as many on your card as on mine, but he was piling up some points, but Canelo was winning the fight nevertheless winning the war uh i'm thinking of chavez taylor was it was kind right. of that sort of fight uh again canelo didn't cut, cut it quite as close as uh, julio cesar chavez did um but it's similar sort of thing where one guy was really doing the damage even if you could make a case that the other guy was winning the boxing match and scoring the points right. um so uh focusing on on kovalev's performance and his strategy. We talked a a bit about uh, Canelo's strategy and approach to the fight. We both agreed that Kovalev's best shot was to box, work behind the jab, and follow a focused, disciplined game plan. He certainly did all that, uh, but he barely threw any power right hands at all. Did did that surprise you? Um, And and even though he came up short, uh, was the strategy that uh, Buddy McGirt, you and I, all devised for him. Uh, I think we, we all had input on that. or At least we were all on the same page as to what he should do. Um, do you feel that was the smart strategy, even though he lost? So even though it didn't work in the end, um, and probably wouldn't have worked even if he'd made it through 12, for all the reasons that we discussed, I guess it probably did make the most sense for him at his age, at this time of his career, after some of the defeats that he's had, I, I, it wouldn't have been the right strategy for three years ago, Sergei Kovalev, for pre-Andre Ward, Sergei Kovalev, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was clearly reticent to throw that right hand because he or Buddy figured that Canelo had the better hand speed, which he did by quite some distance. Um, and he was dialed in to throw that hook any time there was a hint of space for him to do so. Um, and lo and behold, you know, as we just said, um, it was that hook that really did the damage as soon as there was that hint of space for him to throw it. Um, it's sort of following on from the point that you made a bit earlier. In a way, both men probably followed exactly the right strategy uh, until just for a fraction of a second, Kovalev didn't. Um, uh, so I heard from um, Buddy McGirt's publicist, our friend Rachel Charles, mm-hmm. on Sunday morning, and she talked to Buddy. Um, Buddy said, man, 
I felt we had the fight won. Uh, he was, as far as he was concerned, Sergey was doing everything that he wanted him to, and Sergey clearly was being very disciplined and following that plan. Um, and he just said uh, on Sundays, Kovalev was just spending the morning just apologizing, which um, mm -hmm. I don't think he has anything to apologize for. He, he got hit, and, mm -hmm. and, and it happens. Um, and he clearly was executing that game plan with determination. But, but yeah, it was just I think you know Canelo worked worked him and was able to get him to drop that left hand just a bit. But um, you know, I guess to return to the Kovalev perspective, there, I, I guess what was nonetheless weird and what I, I felt was weird as I was watching it was this was the crusher. This was a guy whose reputation and success was founded on being this bludgeoning puncher. I mean, we, we can all picture very easily like what he did to Jean Pascal, what he did to, you know, so many other guys, just, just beating them up, that he was, um, <clears throat> as well as a good boxer, he was a great puncher. I mean, we talked about when we were, you know, previewing this, I think we probably alluded to what Sergey did against Bernard Hopkins. And yeah, he was a good boxer there, but it was a power boxing. And in the 12th round, when Bernard stuck his tongue out at him, he tried to take his head off. Right. Um, and this was a guy who has a reputation of a, being a murderous puncher, really throwing keep-away punches, to be fair, mm -hmm. um, against the guy who was moving up two weight divisions. And, and maybe it was the smartest, the smartest decision. And maybe if he had opened up, and probably, perhaps, if he had opened up with right hands earlier, especially given that Canelo was not having any problem blocking a lot of a lot of Sergey's punches. Right. Um, and I think you you talked last week that you thought that Canelo's defense would be a really key factor here, um, and and I think it it was. Um, you know, perhaps even if he had done that, he would have left himself open for an easier KO or an earlier KO. But it was strange to see a guy called Crusher boxing that way. And and, and I guess we'll talk in a bit about what the future holds for Sergei Kovalev. But watching that performance on Saturday night did make me think we've seen the last of Crusher. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. He was fighting like the exact opposite of what you pick, picture a Crusher doing. Right. Um, despite that, despite losing, and despite uh, the fact that there was a certain... I don't want to say passivity, but non-aggressiveness, mm. at least to his approach to this fight. Despite all that, I think Kovalev kind of exceeded my expectations mm. a, a bit. I, I certainly didn't go in predicting a fight in which I'd give him as many rounds as I did. The ending was somewhat heartbreaking for him. Yeah, um, especially now that now that I'm hearing he's apologizing left and right yeah. afterwards. But and, and you know, not that he's the most sympathetic athlete. Um, sure. But. Uh, it reminded me a little of Fernando Vargas against Oscar, which also ended in the 11th round. And it meant so much for Vargas and mm. the fight was close. And then suddenly it wasn't. Um, so I, I felt a little bad for Kovalev and of course for the, the folks at main events who are really good people. So it's yeah. easier, easier to feel bad for them. But uh, yeah, just uh, just a heartbreaking uh, way to go down for Sergey Kovalev. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we've already talked about some of the things we said last week previewing this. But and one of the things you said last week, uh, you predicted that a Canelo win, especially a convincing one, would lead to clamors that he be elevated to pound for pound number one. And lo and behold, there has certainly been plenty of that mm -hmm. um, in, in the day or so since then. Um, I inferred from what you said when you brought that up and the way you said it last week that you don't necessarily agree with that. But having seen what we've seen, is it at least a valid argument? And have you had time to think about if you wouldn't place him number one where you would place him? Yeah, I have had time to think about it. I sent in my list to ESPN today, in fact. Um, and 
yes, I do think it's a valid argument, uh, but I also, by the criteria that I use for pound for pound, I think it's the wrong side of the argument. I have mm. Lomachenko 1, Crawford 2, Canelo 3. Um, mm. If it's best resume, no question, that's Canelo. Uh, if pound for pound is earned the same way divisional rankings are, where it's just what have you actually done in the ring, then fine, he is on top, perhaps. Uh, but pound for pound is about who's the best, who would beat whom if they were all the same size, with a decent degree of accomplishment mixed in to your analysis there. Uh, like, you don't want to assume someone is great without them having proven it against some good opponents. Um, so that that's where accomplishment factors in. But as long as we've seen enough to know that they can perform that way against top guys, you know, I'm ranking them based on who appears best to me, not based on who earned it by fighting the best opponents. Canelo is great, but he's not top two right now for me. Uh, And here's a key thing. A lot of people who insist Canelo lost both fights to Golovkin, which are both within the past two years or so, are now putting him at number one on their pound-for-pound list. Uh, I know he dared to be great in those fights, and he was great. Uh, And I actually had them both scored as draws. I didn't uh, give him any losses there. But if you think Canelo should have one or two losses on his record in the past two years, I don't know. You can't just pretend that's ancient history. Um, But all that said, I get the case for Canelo at number one pound-for-pound. I just think you need to view pound for pound differently than I do to arrive at that case and differently than Nigel Collins and and the ring did when I worked there. Um, So I I don't know if you have an opinion. You tend to be less enthused about ranking fighters pound for pound these days. But uh, do you have a a strong stance on this? Uh, I don't have a strong stance and I am indeed a bit less enthused. But (laughs) nonetheless, you know, when I I saw all these different posts, I I was thinking about it. And uh, look, I've made no secret about the fact and about how I feel about Vasily Lomachenko. And I just feel that he is clearly the the, the number one fighter in in, in the world. And it does. It is. It's a question of which aspect of the ranking you do prioritize, isn't it? And um, I can see a case, and I love Terence Crawford, and my ranking, my top three, is the same as yours. But I see a case, given that uh, if you start bringing in the, as Larry Merchant would always say, what have you done for me lately Mm -hmm. uh, aspect, that with Terence having a little bit, been treading water ever so slightly through no fault of his own in terms of opposition while canelo has been doing this i can see absolutely a case for canelo to be put number two against that you could also say well you know what full credit to canelo alvarez but he also waited and waited and waited until he thought Gennady golovkin was ready to be taken and then he may not have taken him and he didn't go for Artur Betterbiev at light heavyweight. Right. He went for Sergei Kovalev very specifically. It's like, yes, he's daring to be great, but he's also daring to be great in a very clever way. Um, and, you know, so maybe we, we don't go overboard like that. But I, I do see a case. Depends on what you prioritize. Uh, but he clearly, I, he doesn't deserve to be any lower than number three, I would have thought. Right. Uh, unless, unless you know, maybe you're a massive Naoya Inoue fan um, and could make that kind of case. But he's absolutely in the, I, There's no question now, I think, especially after uh, uh, Anthony Joshua's loss, that he's the biggest 
uh, guy in boxing right now by right. no question. He is boxing right now globally. But yeah, I, I would. I, there's no way I would put him ahead of Lomachenko. I can see a case for him to be ahead of Crawford based on recent level of opposition. Okay. Um, so, but of course, all that pound for pound talk, while interesting to discuss, uh, and some might even say fun to discuss, doesn't really matter, doesn't really have any practical application. Let's talk right. about the stuff that does uh, have practical ap- application, and that's what's next for Canelo. Uh, he remains the lineal middleweight champ, and he holds belts now at 168 and 175. Uh, Arthur Betterbiev, who you mentioned, uh, he's the true lineal light heavyweight champion. There doesn't seem to be too much conversation about no. Canelo facing him next or at all. Uh, in fact, Canelo seemed to indicate that this was just a brief pit stop at 175, and then he may move back to 160. Do you think that's the most likely scenario, and is it the wisest decision for him? Uh, who do you see him facing next? And I guess the most important question for a lot of fans, uh, are we more or less likely now to see a third Golovkin fight? So I guess, first of all, the question of what makes the most sense, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at it, and one of what's best for his body. Um, and and I guess that somewhat depends on how he put on the extra weight, right? So did he bulk up and add muscle to his natural frame? Or is what we saw on, on Saturday night more of his natural frame, and it was just the case that he wasn't cutting weight? to the extent that he's been at middleweight. And, and I guess if it's the latter, he can probably make it to 160 more easily because he could just go back to cutting weight. That would be the case if it's the former, if he had to bulk up and put muscle on because, you know, we've seen in the past what happens if you, you know, sort of bulk up and, and get used to a bigger frame and then try to use muscle. Um, but I suspect, as, as, as we discussed a few weeks ago, that the consideration for Canelo will be based not so much on what weight does he want to carry as who's available at those different weights. And right now, it seems to me that even though he was talking in, in you know, the, 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 the pre-fight interviews about, yeah, no, he wants to go back to 160 and that's, that's where he wants to be. I don't know what's there for him. Hmm. Does he really want to go back down 15 pounds to, defa- to face Demetrius Andrade? Um, and I also don't see him, as you mentioned, staying at 175. That's possibly deadly. I don't see the Canelo who beat Kovalev on Saturday night, necessarily even being super competitive with Better Biev at 175. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe the future, at least for now, might lie at 168 for him. Um, you know, there are some interesting opponents. You know, obviously Callum Smith is the, is the big one that we've talked about. Um, and, you know, he doesn't want to fight Gennady Golovkin. We'll talk about it a bit later on, but Golovkin may have a, a, a mandatory at 160 that I wouldn't be at all surprised if... You know, Canelo sort of sits and waits and makes him do fight that. And then a year from now or next September, when he really figures Gennady's got some extra mileage on him, he makes him go up to 168 and finishes him off there, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he did something like that. And in the meantime, he fought somebody 168. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it feels like there's just probably better opposition and better, bigger fights, as we talked about. The, I don't know if he wants to do it, but the idea of facing like Callum Smith in England would be just huge and and it feels like he's looking to do those big events right now and those big fights that sort of make an impression um and you know that might be something for him i I wouldn't be at all surprised if 68 is where he settles for the the foreseeable future yeah one thing i'll just disagree with really quickly is that uh I kind of think he would be plenty competitive with Better Be. I, I, I wouldn't favor him. I think right. I think I'd make Better Be the favorite, but I think that could be a real competitive fight. But 
Yeah. I'm not so sure that Canelo has any interest in it. So. Yeah, what's in it for him right now, right? right. So if, if Better BF becomes a big star, then right. then sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so what about the other side of the equation? So uh, Canelo, as we said, that you know, at least initially seemed indifferent towards staying at 75. Uh, I was quite surprised. In, well, of course, he was a bit concussed. But in his post-fight interview, Kovalev seemed quite keen on staying at 75 and talked about unifying the belts, presumably when, when and if Canelo abdicates. Um uh, I also thought maybe, may, maybe it was unfair given what I've heard subsequently. I thought at first he was throwing a tiny bit of shade at Buddy when he talked about, you know, how he was just following instructions from his corner to just stick with that pulling jab. But um, when you and I were ringside for Sergei's loss to Eliodia Alvarez last year, I said, as I recall, Kovalev was D-U-N, done. Right. Um, you know, his rematch win over Alvarez and then his fight with Anthony Yard suggested that maybe I'd been premature with that um but was i in hindsight right that he is um finished at least as a major force or do you think he can like put together a couple more belts at, at like heavyweight say against the beaver or something like that yeah i mean it's we certainly learned that he wasn't quite d-u-n done after that but I would say it's fair to say he has been diminished really since mm. Andre Ward cracked that yeah. chin in their second fight, uh, yeah. along with cracking other things. <laughs> Men don't want cracked. Um, I think this performance against Canelo, the way he fought for 10 rounds, suggests he wasn't done coming into this, but he did get hurt and dropped and stopped by a smaller guy. So there's definitely a chance he's going to be D-U-N done now. Um, mm. I mean, he fought pretty well for 10 rounds. He didn't look shot, but his punch resistance just keeps getting a little worse. Uh, to use uh, two Captain Obvious cliches, uh, he isn't getting any younger, and he doesn't like it to the body. Um, so I, I don't like his chances one bit against Arthur Betterbiev. Uh, no. I, whereas I just said that I think Canelo could be competitive in that fight. I don't know that Sergey would uh, would stand up to what Betterbiev is uh, throwing at him. Uh, I don't like his chances a whole lot against Dmitry Bivol either. Kvostik, maybe. Um, I mean, look, we, uh, we we have to see if he's physically diminished further by this fight that we just watched on Saturday. If not, if he's the guy we saw in rounds one through ten, then he's still a top five light heavy. But he might be about to enter the everyone who finds my chin knocks me out point right. in his career. I would bring him back slow with one or two very yeah. soft touches and, and see how that goes. Yeah, because you also wonder if... What we saw against Canelo now, like his offense might be, that's a little bit the way he starts thinking about his offense now. Like instead of being the guy who would come forward uh, and look to do damage, is he afraid now to try and step forward and do damage because he's worried about what might come back at him? So if not only his resilience is maybe a bit diminished, but what he can offer in terms of offensive output is diminished, that that's going to be uh, interesting to see. And like you said, that's exactly why you bring him back gently, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, we started the podcast by talking about the staggering amounts of vamping on the broadcast before the main event. Uh, part of the reason it was as excessive as it was, was that the co-main ended so early. 21-year-old lightweight prospect slash contender Ryan Garcia moved to 19-0 with 16 knockouts with a devastating first-round knockout mm. of Romero Duno of the Philippines. Duno, who dropped to 21-2, and was expected to be a tough test, but Garcia blew him away with a right hand and follow-up left hook. I've generally been a little dubious about Garcia having the substance to go with his style. 
but he had the substance this time for sure. Uh, Kieran, you had fewer doubts about King Rai than I did. You picked Garcia in our fighters under 25 draft a few weeks back. How impressed were you with his performance? Yeah, I was quite impressed. Um, look, as we'll discuss in a little bit, not all first round KOs are the same and they don't tell us the same amount of information. But Duno is, you know, it seems a, a legitimately good opponent um, with just, you know, one loss and he was on a 10 fight uh, unbeaten streak. And, and Garcia just annihilated him. You know, took a couple of punches, set himself up well, um, moved into position. And then, yeah, that great right hand to the temple, boom. And, um, and then that left hook as he was going down. Uh, the one thing I'll say, look, during the three hours of on-air conversation that followed, there was um, there was talk of Devin Haney and Javante Davis. But I liked what Garcia's trainer, Eddie Reynoso, said to Claudio Trejos that, eh, put the brakes on that. He's still a kid. He's still learning. He's still developing. Uh, he's got time. And, and And time is really on his side because he already has that tremendous following, even at... You know, just just 19 and oh, he's already the kind of kid who could be the A side in pretty much any matchup uh, uh, in his weight class. So take time, let him develop, let it work to his advantage. But I, I, I think he did enough to show that he isn't just hype and a pretty face. Uh, he is hype and a pretty face, but he's, <laughs> right. but he's more than that. He, he showed that he does have skill uh, and power to go with. I, I felt like this was his coming out moment when he did really sort of announce that. You know, after all the contract controversy that we've talked about, all the business with Golden Boy and everything else, I think that he announced himself as wherever he ends up being, that he is at least a legitimate, as you called him, prospect slash contender and and possibly a, a, a really quite exciting one. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you mentioned that uh, not all first round knockouts are created equal. Uh, Garcia's wasn't the only first round knockout of the weekend. Uh, in fact, Friday's showbox card from Samstown in Las Vegas. Saw two of them. Uh, in the opening bout of the quadruple header, undefeated welterweight power puncher Rolando Romero moved to 10-0 with nine KOs when he dropped Juan Carlos Cordonez twice en route to a knockout win at 2 minutes and 14 seconds of the first round. But that was positively pedestrian compared to the main <laughs> event, which saw unbeaten super featherweight Xavier Martinez impress again, flattening Jesse Chris Rosales in 21 seconds. <laughs> uh, all I wrote in my notes for that one while watching the fight was three letters, all caps. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Kieran, uh, did these outings tell us anything about Romero or Martinez or were they just too brief? Uh, they may have been too brief, but actually, ironically, the longer one might have been the one that was especially too brief to tell us anything. Mm. I think because we knew less going in about both Romero and Cordonez. Um, I thought Cordonez looked poor, actually. Yeah. Um, he, he looked just overwhelmed by Romero's aggression and power early on, didn't he? And when he went down with that first knockdown, he had that kind of shocked look on his face, like, what the hell, man? You didn't tell me you were going to be punching me like that. <laughs> um and, well, I don't know. It didn't look to me necessarily that he could have gotten up from the second knockdown. I, I certainly yield to the knowledge of Raul Marquez in that regard. And Raul seemed to think he could have got up um, and that he just didn't want to. Um, so I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's hard to say uh, uh, much about Romero based on that. Um, and that's for Martinez. Well, the advantage we have there is we've been impressed with him before. Um, he, he just didn't have really time to show his stuff. That, what's interesting is that at least we have something to compare uh, that with, um, you know, Rosales looked on paper to be pretty good opposition. Um, he had recently gone to a, I think it was a split decision loss against Tyler McCreary, who's actually considered good enough to go up against Carl Frampton in his next fight. But as we noted in our, pre in our preview, there was a question mark there that the guy had been knocked out early. 
by both, you know, uh, Johnny Gonzalez and Shakur Stevenson. But um, I said uh, in my prediction and preview that I didn't expect Martinez to get him out there as early and as spectacularly as Shakur Stevenson did. And he just blew Shakur Stevenson's KO4 out of the, out of the water. So, so it was job done for Martinez in the sense that um, he not only, I think, underlined his, his growing credentials and the fact that he's must-see TV and he's an exciting guy to watch, um, but he did suggest by, by doing it as quickly as that, he sort of put himself in that conversational frame with the Shakur Stevensons of the world, at, at least in, in sense of him being a very exciting uh, uh, talent to watch develop. Yeah. Uh, so the other two bouts on Showbox went the distance. Uh, Kevin Newman II gained revenge for his sole career defeat by comfortably outpointing Marcus Hernandez over A. And in the co-main, Richardson Hitchens, who came in with a bit of hype himself, was made to work, especially down the stretch by uh, Kevin Johnson. He won by scores of 96-94 and 97-93 twice. Uh, was this a case of a hype train being slowed down a little? Or was this actually just very good matchmaking? And um, was this a, okay, let's see what this kid's got. And this was just an important hurdle cleared at this stage of his young career. A bit of both, but I'll lean more toward the latter. Uh, Kevin Johnson was far and away the best B-side on this card. Yeah. Uh, And we talked beforehand about how he'd beaten several previously undefeated fighters, and you could see why. This was a fight between two fast-handed guys who both liked to fight from distance. Uh, It it was a boxing match, but with pockets of excitement. Uh, And... To be fair to Hitchens, he built a comfortable lead before Johnson started winning rounds later in the fight to make it appear a little closer. Look, Hitchens clearly doesn't have the same high ceiling appearance as Xavier Martinez, but he's a solid prospect who passed a test. Let's see where he goes next. Uh, And to touch on Newman real quick. I get why he was begging Leonard Ellerby to make this rematch. Uh, yeah. he, had, he had every edge over Hernandez. Yeah. Uh, he didn't really turn up the aggression as he promised he would, but he didn't need to. Patience, counterpunching, and his speed advantage were all he needed to avenge that loss. I liked his body punching, too. What I didn't like was his showboating late in the fight. Mm. I, I don't think he was so impressive in there that the showboating felt warranted. So that rubbed right. me the wrong way just a little but. Um, There were quite a few other fights of note on Saturday uh, on ESPN from the Dignity Health Sports Park. Uh, I will never get used to calling it that. (laughs) Uh, Miguel Burchelt dominated Jason Sosa, forcing a corner stoppage in the fourth round and setting Burchelt up for bigger fights in the 130-pound division at the MGM National Harbor in Maryland, near your old home. With FS1 televising, Brian Castaño scored a TKO win over Wale Omotoso when Omotoso withdrew with a shoulder injury in round five. And in England, on DAZN, Katie Taylor added a quote-unquote world title at a second Mm -hmm. weight, winning a unanimous decision over Christine Linardatu to claim a super lightweight belt. Uh, Kieran, anything you'd like to comment on among this potpourri of fights? Ah, well, first of all, it's that Bichel, I mean, continues to underline the fact that he's just a beast, isn't he? I mean, he's a wonderful boxer and a delight to watch and clearly a nightmare to face. Uh, He's absolutely one of my favorite fighters, uh, and he just continues to knock over good opposition. I I feel like this year and last year were a little quieter for him than than 2017 when he had an absolutely fabulous uh, year. But, you know, he keeps going, keeps knocking people over, and and he probably has put himself in place now, uh, as you mentioned, for a good year next year. The the talk in the immediate aftermath was if uh, 
possible showdown with Oscar Valdez, which of course is eminently makeable, and, and that would be a fabulous fight, with, which I'd really like to see. It feels as if Burchelt's been waiting for the opportunity to kind of stake his claim to being the top guy at 130 for a while, and there keeps being all these good fighters at 130, and it just hasn't quite happened for him to have that really big uh, showdown fight, uh, but that might be getting closer. Um, uh, and, and congratulations to Katie Taylor, um, but it was interesting that there's now a couple of fights in a row that she was pushed hard and, and marked up. Her right eye was basically closed by the end of, of that fight. Um, I don't think she was pushed quite as much as she was in her last outing against Delphine Purcell when she might have been a bit lucky to get away with the decision. Um, but it was still tough. And then it brought to mind um, a, a, a British uh, observer. I, I've forgotten who it was. It was a one British boxing media person when we, I was discussing Katie Taylor year or two back um who said that in perhaps in in uk boxing circles there was a little bit of a sense that she might have already peaked Mm. by the time she left her second olympics even you know and and maybe you know she's 33 i think or something now so maybe the field's catching up to her a little bit she's still a terrific boxer uh, and one of the biggest names in women's boxing but i'm not sure i would make her the favorite now if she is to have that showdown with Amanda Serrano uh, uh, next year. Uh, so uh, we'll see. And, and Brian Castaño uh, was well on his way to winning that fight with uh, Wale Amatoso. And, uh, uh, you know, unfortunate for Amatoso that he retired the way he was, but that was going to be a Castaño win anyway, by the looks of things. Yeah. And I'll just add about Burchelt. Uh, I think he made himself more than just a credible but sure to lose opponent for Lomachenko here which you know mm. you tend to, mm. in this weight range we measure guys against Lomachenko yeah. and that that was where he was for me prior to this but it, he was so dazzling against Sosa that I think Lomachenko Berchelt now looks like a real fight uh not not that I have any doubt about who I'd pick and who I'd favor but it just it looks like a real fight and by the way Sosa is so game. He He's on oh the short gosh. list for yeah. toughest little SOBs yeah. in boxing. Yeah. Uh, good stoppage by his corner because, you know, Sosa would never quit. They did the right thing, throwing in the towel to save him from both Burchelt and himself. Yeah. And Lomachenko is the only guy who's dominated Sosa apart from Burchelt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even, you know, when he's lost or, or, you know, or wound up with a draw, he's always been competitive, I think, Sosa. So, yeah, yeah, good point. Joining us right now is someone we saw on Showtime just a week or so ago, punching his way to a clear unanimous decision win over Nathaniel Gallimore. He is one of the stars of an increasingly packed and talented 154-pound division. He is here with both Sledge and Jack Hammer. He is Ericsson the Hammer Lubin. Ericsson, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Pleasure, my pleasure. I forget which one is which. Which one is Sledge and which one is Jack? My right hand. My right hand is... uh. Jack. Okay. Left hand is Okay. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep them straight. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, uh, congratulations on your on your most recent victory uh, against Gallimore. Uh, he he was a fairly late replacement for your original opponent, Terrell Gachet. How much of a challenge is it to have to change focus late in camp to fight not just a new opponent but a radically different opponent style wise? I, I imagine preparing for Gallimore had to have been completely different from preparing for Gachet. Yeah, well, we had um, we we we're uh, pre- we were prepared for Terrell Gachet, but you know we we probably pre- prepared for him for like seven weeks, and then we had to just switch it up for the last three weeks. It was uh, two different styles. Um, we had to switch it up for um, Gallimore. It was a uh, it was a little not difficult, but it was um 
it was different. It was different. But, um, you know, Kevin Cunningham, he, when we're training, we're training for every type of style. So it wasn't too, too bad. Right. Yeah. And I, I know Kevin said uh, in the lead up to the fight that he thought Gallimore would actually be tougher. Was that how you felt about it, too, going in? Yeah, I did kind of feel like he would be tougher. But, you know, we, we just came in shape. We came in in, in supreme shape and, um, you know, executed the game plan and just made the fight easy, easier than what we thought it would be. Mm. You're now 4-0 since your one loss um, to Jamel Charlo. Do you feel you're all the way back now to where you were before that fight? For sure. I've been felt like I was back, but uh, maybe the world feels like I'm back now. Sure. But I felt like I've always been back. You know, I've been training with Kevin for a year and some change now, and I just feel, you know, um, my game is just leveling up. Not to dwell on that defeat, I, I promise that uh, after this question, we'll, uh, we'll we'll stop asking you about it. But I, I am curious, um, what was going through your head in the locker room after that loss to Charlo? Because I, I imagine it's rough enough dealing with a loss after like a good, hard, tough fight. But to find yourself back there after not even really having had a chance to get started, that, that must have been difficult to process. Yeah, it was definitely upsetting. Kind of felt like my career was over, but... um. You know, I just, um, I have family around. I have my friends around. You know, they um, they, they were still, you know, by my side. But um, I knew I had to change something after that. I knew I had to, like, you know, get out of my um, hometown of Orlando and just change it up and just level up. And that's what I did. So, mm-hmm. you know, me, me getting with Kevin, he's he's more than just a trainer. He's He's like a manager. You know, he's... He's a, um, he's a he's a he's a great trainer, but he's also like you know he he picks the right fights for me. He picks the uh, the opponents, and um, you know he's big help to my career. You know he he discusses the opponents with you know my managers and stuff like that. Can't say he picks them, but he he discusses you know what type of opponents that we should you know be facing next. Yeah, the impression I always get about Kevin is that, you know, when you sign up to be with him, you know, you're, you you touched on it just there, that you're signing up for like the full service menu, right? Like it's not just even what's going on in the gym or what's going on in the ring, that he's very interested in your social welfare, your emotional welfare, like when you're getting up, when you're going to bed, what you're eating, all that kind of stuff. Like he's he's not for just sure. going to be a trainer, like you said. And, and is that what you were looking for? Yeah, for sure. He's all in. So mm. when I when I go to strength and conditioning at night, he's the one taking me. He, he takes me to the strength and conditioning. He he sits there, he waits and see uh, what type of work we put in. You know, he he don't try to be the trainer, but he just you know put in his two cents of mm. you know what needs to be worked on. Mm. Right. Mm. I mean, not I I don't know you, yeah, but. Yeah, what I've seen from your personality, it seems like that's probably a really good mesh with you because you seem like a really serious, grounded guy, and you know, you, you, like the, your focus is on on your business, and and so I imagine that really meshes really well, you two. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it does. That's how I grew up. Right.
the, certainly the results are there uh, with, with Kevin. You're four and zero, as Kieran said, uh, and uh, your your biggest statement in that stretch, I would say, was knocking out Ishe Smith in in three rounds. And yeah, Ishe was at the end of his career, but he'd just gone the distance with Tony Harrison. He'd never before come close to being stopped. How important was it to make a big statement like that to not just outpoint him, but really dominate and be the first to stop him? Well, that that's the approach we brought brought into the ring we wanted to you know make a statement against him be the first one to stop him you know prior to that you know he he went the distance with tony harrison mm-hmm. i think i think uh tony harrison beat him on a majority decision or something yeah um or or split so did j-rock he had a pro- um he had a very close fight with julian williams so we knew um we knew uh he was tough but we we wanted to you know get a get a big win over him and then the same thing with uh, Gallimore. He had mm. a very uh, tough fight with Julian Williams. It was a back-and-forth type of fight. It was a majority decision. And we knew um, we had to go in there and just dominate the fight. The win of yours that I really wanted to ask you about, um, and I imagine people probably ask you about it a lot, is a couple of years back, Jorge Coda. So, like, you've got Coda against the ropes. I've never seen anything before, like this before. You're looking at him against the ropes. You kind of squat down on your haunches. You, you sort of launch yourself up, and you knock him out with the left hand. I've never seen anybody do that before. Where did that come from? Um, I, I'm always in, I was in the gym with uh, some Cubans and Dominican guys, and, you know, they, that's, how, that's how they get down. You know, they, they're, they're like, bro, sick and savvy, so... You know, they, they'll do that while they're sparring, and I just, you know, I picked it up. You know, Jawan Guzman, I learned that from him. Oh, okay. All right. And so it's just a case where the, the, the moment struck you in the fight that uh, you didn't, did you, like, did you really think about it, or it was just kind of on instinct, I'm going to do this thing right now? Yeah, it was kind of like on the instinct. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it right now, you know, throw him off a little bit. I actually thought he was going to, I thought he was going to throw something. Usually it's just like a, it's like another way of slipping a punch. I thought he was right. going to throw something since I had him on the ropes and I was going to dodge the punch like that. But I ended up doing it and he never um, he never threw a punch. So then, you know, it kind of threw him off and I just lined up my left hand right after it. Right. <laughs> Um, so this division that, that you're fighting in, this 154-pound division right now, it's it's really stacked with interesting fighters, talented fighters, top to bottom, and there's a lot of parity. It feels as if on a given day, any one of the top guys could beat any one of the others. Where do you see yourself fitting in there right now, and who would you most like to face next? Um, I want one of the champions. It, don't, it doesn't matter to me, honestly. I feel like I'm right in the mix. Um, you know, I'll fight one of the champions. I definitely want a title. You know, um, I definitely want my rematch with Charlo as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's definitely a fight I want. But, um, you know, my team, my team will work that up. We'll see what's next. Okay. I, right. I, I, I ain't picking the fights. <laughs> All right. So you, you don't necessarily sit there and, and study and say like, oh, J-Rock is a great style for me. Harrison's a little trickier style or any, or like whatever. You, you would take any one of them if presented the opportunity. Right. I'm on go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so early in your career, one thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about is I think you worked with Mike Tyson a, a little, like when you were really pretty young, like right, 17, 18, something like that. And, and I'm curious how that yeah. came about and, and what was that experience like? Um, it was, it was, um, I feel like it was definitely something I needed, you know, to be around someone 
<clears throat> that was also um, real young in the game, you know, with a buzz, you know, because I, I just had came out the the amateurs, and you know, I had a I had a big buzz. So you know, he just he pretty much taught me how to deal with that type of stuff. He, mm. he taught me how to deal with the media, mm. you know, how to how to deal with the money that was coming in. And, you know, being around Mike, that was, um, you know, I'm actually still cool with Mike. Mm-hmm. It caused me some time. You know, it, was, it was definitely something I needed. Right. Do you see yourself <clears throat> mentoring, like, other young fighters in that same kind of way, knowing what Mike gave to you? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. For sure. That's definitely something. Um, you know, I, I got I got a couple of young, young friends that are coming up. I got, you know, kids from my city that are amateurs, like kids around the U.S. that are amateurs, you know, they hit me up for advice and, you know, I give it to them. Right. So you, you mentioned you're you're still in touch with Mike. I, I have to admit, I like I'll see a little clip of him every now and then on social media. And I, I get a little emotional seeing how he's come through everything and seems to be in a good place. Um, so I, I'm just curious uh, if you have any of the similar feelings and, and, you know, just just how deep your personal relationship with him is. Um. Well, I, I feel like I feel like um, you know, he's he's definitely bounced back from you know a lot of negative stuff, mm-hmm. and you know that that that's exactly what he was working on during the time he signed me was mm-hmm. um, you know, just working working on getting himself back together. But you know, eventually, you know, we we parted ways, and I ended up getting with Al Heyman because you know he uh, PBC and Al Heyman was able to further my career. I feel like that's also something I needed. All right. All right. So, so last question for you here. Um, it's clear that when you hang up your gloves uh, a, a long time from now, uh, you have a job as an odds maker or, or, or maybe a professional sports better waiting for you. Uh, and I say that because right before the Eris Landy Lara Brian Castaño fight, you predicted a draw. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so uh, can you tell me with certainty who's going to win the Super Bowl this year so I can get some money down on it? <laughs> uh, the Patriots. Yeah, that's the insane. Oh, come Go on. But the, the Patriots. But the, that's, no, it, that's no I'm fun to bet. Now. Calling it now, man. <laughs> Patriots always been my team. Okay. And and probably a, a safe sound pick there. Um, but in all seriousness about that Lara Castaño pick, did, did you know before you went on the air that you were going to make a draw your pick or, or did that just come to you in the moment and, and you went with it? No, I actually, <clears throat> I actually seen Castaño before. Like, you know, maybe that was the first time the world was seeing him, but I, I, I've seen him fight before and I knew he, um, he brings the pressure, like, you know, he, he brings the pressure. And I didn't know if, uh, you know, Laura just came from that. Um, he just got a, uh, came from the fight with Hurd. Right. You know, Hurd brings the pressure, but Castillo's more skilled than Hurd. And he brings, you know, pressure. He has he has good power. So I, I just felt like it would, it would be a draw. Hmm. Hey, Erickson, look, thanks so much. Uh, folks, if you want to know more about Erickson Lubin, totally recommend you check out The Rise, which is a three-part digital series that Showtime did that was posted earlier this summer. It takes a good look at Erickson's life in and out of boxing. And Erickson, I am sure we'll be seeing you pretty soon on Showtime Championship Boxing again. And until then, hey, thanks so much for joining us. We've really appreciated it here on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks very much. Thanks, Erickson.
I like that guy. Th- thanks again yeah. to Erickson Lubin for coming on the pod. That was good. Uh, okay, let's look forward. Uh, there are a handful of fight cards of note coming up this week. James Kirkland makes one of his periodic returns in San Antonio on Saturday. Uh, and a card of greater significance is to the West in Fresno, California, as Jamel Herring meets Lamont mm. Roach Jr. in the first defense of his 130-pound strap. But the most significant fight of the week takes place in Saitama, Japan, on the zone on Thursday, U.S. time, as Naoya Inoue faces off with Nonito Donare in the World Boxing Super Series Bantamweight Final. Kieran, we, we've spoken somewhat lightheartedly over the last couple of months about hoping Donare injures himself or is somehow unable to go through with this. Uh, but now the fight is almost here, and these two are going to exchange meaningful punches, and it's time to be serious about this. Yeah. Is there anything that Denare can do to avoid what everyone is assuming will be a violent knockout win for the monster? I don't know that there is. I really don't. And and that's less of a commentary on Anito, on, on although I guess it's a bit of a commentary on where he is these days, than it is on Inoue, who's just, he's just doing ridiculous things. Um I mean, you look at his last three fights. Was it Jamie McDonald in one round, Juan Carlos Pavano in one round, Manuel Rodriguez in two rounds, and um, Nonito, and you'll notice I'm calling him Nonito. Uh, <laughs> Smart move. I, I should have done that myself. <laughs> um, I mean, well, to be fair to him, he's he's shown more staying power than I expected when he got splattered by Nicholas Walters. I, I, I was one of those who sort of wrote his career obituary um, after, after that fight, uh, and that was five years ago now, but he, he stayed in there, but at the same time, he's still a guy who lost to, is it Jesse Magdaleno? It's one of the Magdalenos. Um, he lost to Carl Frampton, although he was more competitive, I thought, in that loss to Frampton, certainly than I expected. Um, and maybe he was probably going to lose, or at least it would have been favored to lose to Ryan Burnett, had Burnett not been forced to retire with the back injury that, as we talked about last week, ultimately, you know, cost him his career. Um, and for all the success that he's continued to have, for all the skills that he has, uh, um, for all the class that he has, um, I, I just don't see what he has to keep another way off him. Um, I have a horrible feeling this is going to be like that Walters fight, but possibly more concussive, more conclusive, and, and more rapid. Um, in no way really does live up to that nickname. He really is a monster. And, you know, we spoke earlier about pound for pound, and he is knocking on that door. Um and I fully expect those knocks to be louder uh, uh, after Thursday. I, I'd love to think of a way. I love anybody who knows Nonita Donaire <laughs> loves him. <laughs> you know, he's a great guy. He's been good for boxing. He's a, he's a really talented guy. But I, I am worried that. I mean, I think for me, the one consolation is that I don't think he's going to get beaten up over a long period in this fight. I, I just have a hard time seeing this fight lasting a long time. Yeah, the the one thing I'll say for Nonito that provides a, a glimmer of hope is that he is a natural puncher always has been yeah it's probably like a two percent shot at best because you know he is that good but maybe he lands a bomb and it's his carbajal versus arce moment um, right. you know but more realistically uh i'm with you i hope he gets carved in half by a body shot early Right. And that's that. And then we can have a debate next week about where Inoue fits in pound for pound with Lomachenko, Crawford, and Canelo. Yep. And if we're going to vote for Nonito for the Hall of Fame in three years. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, Inoue Donair is the most significant fight of the week. Uh, I certainly agree with that. Um, however, 
alas, it probably will not be the most widely watched or discussed fight or air quotes fight of the week. Uh, so on Saturday from Los Angeles on the zone, Devin Haney defends his lightweight belt, but that's not the main attraction on that card. Uh, Billy Joe Saunders defends his 168 pound belt. But that's not the main attraction on that card. Uh, The main attraction, the main event, uh, the bout that is likely to generate at least as much online attention as any sanctioned event this year, unfortunately, is uh, apparently uh, KSI against Logan Paul. And if you thought I was and we were both very get off my yard at the beginning of this podcast, (laughs) buckle up. Um, So I don't know. It's a maybe you don't feel the same it's a function of my age and and my priorities in life that i know nothing about either of these people other than that as far as i can tell logan paul is something of a moron who's something that's somehow gotten rich from youtube (laughs) um i gather also that this is a rematch uh but i do know that lots of other mostly younger people people who i'm guessing generally don't even slightly follow boxing uh know who they are and are going to be watching and are really excited about this i don't know So I guess there are two ways to look at this. The aforementioned get-off-my-yard approach that this kind of sideshow has no business being on a major boxing card, let alone at the top of a major boxing card. And conversely, the get-over-it attitude, which posits that anything that attracts eyeballs is a good thing and it just is what it is. Uh, No surprises for guessing, more or less, where I stand on here. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to go ahead and assume you stand in more or less the same place, but maybe I'm wrong. All right, so... Uh, I heard Logan Paul interviewed by our friend Brian Campbell. Um, it was an entertaining okay. interview. Uh, I'm going to say more meathead than moron. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shade, shade separating those two words. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, meathead feels more like the right word for Logan Paul. I know nothing about KSI other than that he's from some other country. Uh, yeah, he has an accent. And you know how I hate people from other countries with accents. Oh, that's voice. Seriously. <laughs> Um, But it's a really interesting question you ask between get off my lawn and get over it. Uh, And I guess what I'll say is I get this from a business perspective. And I think it makes a lot of sense for DAZN as they try to attract signups and make a splash. And I don't think it really hurts boxing. Like, did Dustin Diamond and Refrigerator Perry and Tanya Harding all being on Celebrity Boxing hurt the sport? No, it it was a silly, frivolous co-opting of boxing. This is more serious than that, and there are real fighters like Haney and Saunders on the undercard, and someone like Haney is perfect for showcasing in front of a few hundred thousand viewers who otherwise wouldn't know who he is. I guess what I'm saying is, this isn't really a good thing. Uh, I don't think this is going to create new boxing fans that stick around to any substantial extent, but it's not a bad thing. Uh, As long as nobody gets seriously hurt, I don't see any real downside to letting a couple of quote-unquote celebrities box and get a lot of attention. Uh, You know, I I don't recall Major League Baseball imploding after Garth Brooks had his run in the minors. Uh, The XFL didn't ruin the NFL. Uh, The NFL is constantly threatening to ruin the NFL, but that's another story. Uh, So yeah, I lean get over it. Uh, but I'm also uh, not going to watch the fight. Uh, Quick quick highlights the next day, maybe. That's about it. Right. Yeah, I guess that my, my main issue with it is that anytime there's this sort of quote unquote celebrity boxing, I feel like it diminishes boxing in the sense that and it diminishes boxes because it suggests that anyone can do it. And I think that's the difference between that and baseball is that boxing's super dangerous. Um, and, and, and anytime that there's that, oh, you know, anyone can box and 
you know and and there's sort of earn money from that i always think is is, is a bit worrying but uh, and if i it's up to them whether they seem happy enough to it with it but i, I cringe a little bit at seeing legitimate world quality boxes on an undercard or something like this but having said that it is boxing and if any sport has no cause for sitting on a high horse or or complaining about circus atmospheres or sideshows it's boxing um which has quite happily and willingly thrown itself into the mud at every available opportunity and when asked do you really want to debase it yourself responds with how much are you gonna pay me (laughs) so so there is that and and there is an argument to be made that if you're still like me getting a little bit stuffy about things uh such things when you're spending your time talking about boxing then well maybe you just need to look in the mirror a little bit (laughs) but let this be our last discussion on the matter well, eh, I don't know. Then we we may feel compelled to talk about it for two minutes next week. Yeah, we might. <laughs> All right. Uh, a couple of announcements of actual upcoming fights, or fights that are reportedly being close to being made. Uh, Jose Ramirez and Victor Postol, that was a matchup we mentioned in passing last week, uh, is apparently close to being done for February 1st in the Chinese island province of Hainan. Uh, which should uh, possibly help clarify, not the fact that it's in Hainan, but uh, that matchup may uh, help clarify the situation at the top of the 140-pound division. We talked about that last week, wondering, you know, just exactly what is the order there at the top of that division. Um, uh, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, while Canelo basks in glory from beating Sergei Kovalev and seems to have the, his pick of weight divisions, uh, Gennady Golovkin, if he wants to keep his 160-pound trinket, must apparently content himself with a mandatory defense uh, against Camille Zeramata, uh, um, whom I must confess, I have to do a lot more research. <laughs> Same here. Um, uh, that uh, would apparently be in late February or early March. And uh, one of the sanctioning bodies has ordered a rematch between uh, cruiserweights uh, Maris Bredis and Christoph Glowacki after their odd and very controversial and foul-filled uh, fight that was won by Bredis in the WBSS semifinals in June. Uh, anything leap out at you out of that lot? I guess the bredis Glowatsky rematch makes sense to order. Uh, yeah. I think the guy who won was going to win anyway, uh, yeah. but the guy who lost got all sorts of screwed by yeah. the worst night I've ever seen Robert Bird have. <laughs> uh, the Triple G fight, whatevs. Uh, I guess the question of, is Gennady getting washed, makes an otherwise meh fight against an unworthy opponent. I I looked him up. I have not watched him fight, but I looked up his resume. He is not worthy uh, of this sort of fight just based on who he's fought. But that, you know, that is Gennady getting washed questions makes this sort of worth checking out, maybe. Um, But Ramirez Postal is certainly the biggest news here. Uh, Really competitive fight. And if Ramirez gets by Postal, we'll have a better sense of where he stands relative to Josh Taylor. And maybe, cross our fingers, Taylor Ramirez can happen in 2020. Although, you know boxing politics and stuff boxing indeed hashtag boxing (laughs) uh meanwhile one fight is apparently off nigel ben has canceled his planned one-off comeback against saki obika at age 55 because of a shoulder injury deep exhale uh also seemingly off uh julio cesar chavez jr's contest this month with daniel jacobs uh if that was ever actually a done deal i'm not quite sure but it's apparently not happening now because jr reportedly refused to provide a sample for nevada drug testers Uh, so two fights not happening but there are reports of another fight that erupted spontaneously (laughs) on saturday night 
Adrian Broner finally letting his hands go, and not just for middle finger flashing purposes, uh, <laughs> and allegedly punching supposed BFF Javante Davis outside Canelo's dressing room. The details remain sketchy. Some sources say sort of stuff, while other people's sources seem right. to be downplaying it. So lo- lots of little items there. Want to comment on any of that, Kieran? So as for Chavez Jr., that is that the least surprising news, really, <laughs> of the... I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure how many more chances, you know, he's going to get. I don't know exactly what happened. He he posted something to the effect of, uh, I don't know, that the, the drug tester showed up at the wildcard gym. And if uh, I put his statement into Google Translate because he posted a, a tweet um, in Spanish uh, and the Google Translate didn't help. Uh, I got the impression they were saying just the tester showed up and was very rude and pushy and and they and then left. But uh, I don't know. Aren't drug testers supposed to be rude and pushy? Isn't that? I, I, <laughs> so I don't know. But um, but that's probably well the end of that chance for Chavez Jr. Um, and. Yes, was this probably the best possible ending to the whole Nigel Benn situation, wasn't it, really? Um, it, it seems to be legitimately frustrating for him, as he clearly did want, for whatever emotional and psychological reasons, to have one more piece of closure. But, um, you know, he was insisting that this wasn't a case of his 55-year-old body breaking down, even as it appears to have been a case of his 55-year-old body breaking down right. while, while in camp. So uh, apparently it's clearly very devastating for him, and I don't want to diminish the fact that it was obviously very, very important to him. But even if he doesn't see it that way, uh, this is probably all for the best. Uh, and as for Bronner and Tank, yeah, I, exactly as you said, I have no idea what's true and what isn't, but all I can say is to bring a circle back to the top of the podcast that if this is indeed what happened, this is another example of why you shouldn't allow like hours and hours to pass before the main event in the boxing <laughs> card because people have time on their hands and they get up to all kinds of trouble. So. Yes. Time is a dangerous thing to have available to you sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, many thanks again to Erickson Lubin for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week as we look back at among other things in and we will also spend some time previewing what promises to be a terrific documentary feature uh, premiering on showtime on friday november 15th pariah the lives and deaths of sunny liston until then thanks for listening